and uh, we have managed to make it here. Uh, it's been quite a year. Uh, there's probably not a single person in this room that would disagree that this has been a challenging year. It has been a frustrating year. For some, it has been a, a depressing year. Others, it's been tiring, heartbreaking, sometimes even infuriating. But if you were at home watching on the live stream, you're sitting here in this room, congratulations, you have made it through 2020. And uh, now we stand on the precipice of 2021. And it appears, at least for the near future, that things really aren't going to change a whole lot. COVID-19 is still here. It is still going strong. Uh, we are still wearing masks. When someone uh, sneezes in the bread aisle at Giant, we still turn our heads. We still order uh, takeout dinner and dine by ourselves or with our spouse or our kids rather than getting to go out with family and friends into a restaurant. Uh, many of the government restrictions uh, that had been imposed since uh, March continue on. Uh, the long-term stability of our economy is, is questionable at best. Uh, the geopolitical landscape is uh, volatile. Every day you read about China flexing its muscles economically and militarily. Uh, Russia continues to be completely unpredictable. Iran is led by a, a group of madmen that uh, are hell-bent on, on creating destruction uh, throughout the Middle East and, and to other places in the world. The United Kingdom has finalized its uh, exit from the European Union. Nobody really knows what that actually is going uh, to look like. Uh, trust in our government is at an all-time low. When I, when I was born in 1964, trust in the government was 77% of the people that were polled at that time would say that, that they always believe or most of the time believe what the government says. Today, it is at 17%. Four years ago, the Democrats were saying that the Russians had rigged the election. Now, four years later, the Republicans are saying that the, the Democrats have rigged the election. And, and people wonder why we don't trust our government. In the midst of all of that chaos, on Christmas morning, a computer consultant drives into downtown Nashville, Tennessee, and blows himself up along with his RV, just adding to the, to the carnage that is occurring in, in our urban communities all across this country. And to make matters worse as a society, we cannot seem to solve these problems because everybody's divided. We're divided politically, economically, we're divided socially and ethnically, religiously, and every other lead that you can possibly think of, we're divided. So if you ask me, 2021 isn't really looking any better than 2020. So how is that for a uh, wonderful introduction to a message on hope? 
So the question is, what do we do? These are the cards that have been dealt to us. This is, this is what we get to play in 2021. What in the world are we supposed to do? Especially as, as those of us who call ourselves fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ, what, what are we supposed to do in the midst of all of this? Do we hunker down? Do we lock our doors, close the curtains, uh, protect what we have, and, and pray for Jesus' imminent return? Is, is that the plan? Do we say to ourselves, who cares if billions of people around the world die in their sin, separated eternally from the God of the universe, because I would like Jesus to come back tomorrow to take me out of this misery. Is that what we do? Maybe we take a, a, another angle. Maybe we just give up. Maybe we cast God's word to, to the side, and maybe we just say, you know what, let's just uh, eat, drink, and, and, and party, and, and be merry the whole time, for tomorrow, what? We're just going to, to die. Or perhaps we do what some people have done, and we succumb to the bitterness and, and we vent our rage uh, to our family and to our friends. We vent our, our rage on social media. Or perhaps we go to God and we ask him, what does he want us to do in the midst of all of this discord and fear and uncertainty? And then when we hear from God, we actually commit ourselves to doing the things that he calls us to do. Well, rest assured, if we choose one of the first three things, 2021 will not be any different than 2020. It will simply be filled with more hopelessness. But if we choose to do the latter, if we choose to, to seek God's purposes in the midst of the struggle, and then subsequently actually do his will in the midst of that same struggle, we will find hope that, that we so incredibly long for. But you don't have to take my word for it. I want to show, show this hope to you out of the pages of Scripture. Specifically, I want to show it to you from the prophetic book in the Old Testament of Jeremiah. So let's get started. In the month of November, uh, in my morning quiet time, I decided that I would just begin to study the book of Jeremiah. And it is a, a fascinating account of how incredibly messed up the world can become, especially when God's people choose a life of disobedience. But there's another thing that's happening inside of Jeremiah all of the time where God's saying, hey, bad things are going to happen to you. You're going to die. The Babylonians are going to do this. The Babylonians are going to do that. There's this other thing, that, that you're being punished for your sins. God is constantly saying, I am ultimately working for your redemption. And God wants to work for our redemption even in the midst of our own sin. And specifically today, I want to talk about an obscure individual that I discovered nestled in the pages of Jeremiah, a fellow by the name of Ebed Melech. So that's who we're actually going to look at. Now, Ebed Melech is an Ethiopian eunuch who lived in the city of Jerusalem 
who was serving a king by the name of Zedekiah. In other words, what you have here is you have a black African man. He's a Gentile. He has been emasculated. Someone has cut off his sex organs. And he is now 2,600 miles from home, living in a, in a city filled with rebellious people, serving a Jewish king named Zedekiah. As far as his status in life, he's pretty much a nothing. It doesn't get any lower than that. You are a foreigner, you are a eunuch, you are in a, in a land where, where you are not one who worships the, the God of the majority of the people, and you are serving uh, serving as a servant to the king. But, but that's just the half of it. You know, King Zedekiah, he was a hot mess. He, he was nothing more than a, than a, a figurehead. He was a, basically a pawn. He was appointed king of Judah, uh, the land that, that uh, was the southern part of, of the Israelite kingdom that housed the, the city of Jerusalem. He was appointed there by a powerful Babylonian king, by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. And what had happened was Nebuchadnezzar and his armies from Babylon had overrun uh, the region of Judah. They had laid siege to the city of Jerusalem. Eventually, they, they break into the city. They take all of the wealthy people back to Babylon, and they install Zedekiah as king over this decimated nation and city, and all that the people that are left in the city are all the poor farmers and all the poor laborers. And his job is to keep this motley group of people under control. That's Zedekiah's job. And for nine years, this group of poor people continue to press on Zedekiah. They tell him, we need to rebel against Babylon. We need to rebel against Babylon. We need to get our freedom back. And, and how we need to rebel against Babylon is we need to get the Egyptians, and we need the Egyptians to come and partner with us to fight against the Babylonians. And after nine years, Zedekiah, he eventually capitulates. And he gives these poor Jewish farmers and laborers that which they want. He rebels against Babylon. He also makes a... Uh, makes a deal with Egypt that Egypt's going to come to the rescue. But he doesn't calculate things very well. And you see, the Babylonians arrive in Judah and outside of Jerusalem far before the Egyptians can show up. And the Babylonians, they lay siege to Jerusalem once again. Now, while all of this is going on, while the people are freaking out because things are not working out the way that they expected it to go, and there's this guy by the name of Jeremiah. He's a, a prophet of the Lord to the Jewish people, and he is telling Zedekiah, and he's telling the people in Jerusalem, you need to surrender to Nebuchadnezzar. This is a bad idea rebelling against him because the reason that you are in captivity to the Babylonians right now is because of your sin. This is God's punishment against your sin. And you are now pushing against that punishment. Now, for any of us who are parents, and when we're 
punishing our kids and they push against our punishment, do we relent? We don't relent. We, we make the punishment even harder. And Jeremiah is trying to help Zedekiah and the people actually understand this. And he tells them, if you do not surrender, bad things are going to happen. Well, not surprisingly, the Jewish people say, yeah, I think we're just going to kind of go with our plan, Jeremiah. And instead, they wait for salvation from the Egyptians. And eventually, the Egyptian army arrives, and the Babylonians see them coming. And so the Babylonians, they, they stop their siege against Jerusalem, and they go to fight the Egyptians. And all the people inside the city of Jerusalem, they're crazy excited. They're like, the Babylonians have left us. Well, the thing that they don't take into account is the Babylonians go and they slaughter the Egyptians. And what do they do next? They come right back to the city and lay siege to the city again. And at this point now, things have gone from bad to worse. The food has run out in the city of Jerusalem. All the while, Jeremiah is continuing his message. You need to surrender yourselves to Babylon, and, and, and you will at least live. But if you don't surrender, you are going to die. Well, the Jewish people, they, they can't take Jeremiah any longer. And so they go to Zedekiah the king, and, and they tell him, look, this, this dude, Jeremiah, this prophetic clown, he, he's got to go. And, and we just need to get rid of him because he, he's discouraging all the people. The morale of our army is at an all-time low. There's this siege going on. We, we got to get rid of him. We got a plan. We're going to just throw him into a cistern, into a well. Zedekiah, is that okay with you? Zedekiah's like, sounds like a great plan to me. And they go and they toss Jeremiah into the well. Now, I realize that was a lot of backstory, but we needed to set the stage for, for our encounter with Ebed Melech. So if you have a Bible with you, open to Jeremiah 38, chapter 7. I have a Bible at home. Uh, open to it, too. It'll also be up on the big screen. We're going to look at verses 7 through 13. Jeremiah 38, 7 through 13. And if you were able to stand here, at Living Water or at home, if you would do so in honor of God's word. Jeremiah 38, starting in verse 7. When Ebed Melech, the Ethiopian, a eunuch who was in the king's house, heard that they had put Jer Jeremiah in the cistern, the king was sitting in the Benjam Benjamin gate. And Ebed Melech went from the king's house and said to the king, My lord the king, these men have done evil in all that they did to Jeremiah the prophet by casting him into the cistern, and he will die there of hunger, for there is no bread left in the city. Then the king commanded Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, take 30 men with you from here, and lift, Jeremiah, and lift Jeremiah the prophet out of the cistern before he dies. So Ebed-Melech took the men with him, and went to the house of the king, to a wardrobe in the storehouse, and took from there old rags and worn out clothes, which he let down to Jeremiah in the cistern by ropes. And Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, said to Jeremiah, Put the rags and clothes between your armpits and the ropes. Jeremiah did so. 
They drew Jeremiah up with ropes and lifted him out of the cistern, and Jeremiah remained in the court of the guard. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So, we think we have things bad. Think what it must have been like to be Eben Melik. Here you are, poor Ethiopian eunuch, 2,600 miles from mom and dad. 2,500 years ago, you're living. No electricity, no running water, no sewage system, no 5G cell phone service or Hulu. You have none of that stuff. All the things that you and I need to survive, you have absolutely none of that. I put pause for a little hopeful laughter. They didn't laugh last night. They didn't laugh at the first service. I stink. You're serving as a slave for a worthless king. You're living in the midst of a people who are in active rebellion to their God. You're in a city that is under siege from the superpower of the day. It would be like being in a foreign country and waking up one day and looking off your coast and seeing a, a two American aircraft carriers waiting. That's what it would be like. And you most probably are either going to die from the sword, from famine, or from disease. Does it get any worse than that? You would think that all he would do is actually care about himself. And the reason you would think of that is because most of us, when we are presented with those types of circumstances, when the world seems to be arrayed against us, when our world is completely falling apart, if we're really honest, the only person that we really give a rip about at that time is me, myself, and I. That's where we're at. We only end up caring about ourselves. Sure, we say we care about other people, but the reality is the events of 2020 have proved pretty much that most people are extremely self-focused. But that's not Ebed Melik. There's something different about him, something that distinguishes him from all of the other people that are living in the city of Jerusalem. And that's something we will discover here in about 10 minutes, a little later in the message. But that's something drives him to do two very unselfish things. But they're not only unselfish, they're extraordinarily dangerous. And the first is this, is that he courageously speaks out for that which is right. Look again at verses 7 through 9. When Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, a eunuch who was in the king's house, heard that they had put Jeremiah into the cistern, the king was sitting in the Benjamin gate. And Ebed-Melech went from the king's house and said to the king, My lord the king, these men have done evil, and all they did to Jeremiah the prophet by casting him into the cistern, and he will die there of hunger, for there is no bread left in the city." So our man, he goes to the king, his boss, 
the king who, who's the one who gave permission for the residents of Jerusalem to throw Jeremiah into the well. He goes to the very king who could do the exact same thing to him. And he confronts the king. But he doesn't do it in private. It says that he goes to this place called the, the Benjamin Gate. It's where the, the king basically sits to, to make rules and to judge. It's a very public place. And, and when he goes and he confronts the king, he pulls absolutely no punches. He calls things as he sees them. He calls what has been done to Jeremiah evil. The people didn't make a mistake. They didn't get confused. They weren't just acting out of self-interest. What they have done is evil. And that's what he calls it. He's not worried about being politically correct. He's not concerned about what other people are going to think about him. He doesn't even to be concerned, appear to be concerned even about his own life. Evil has been done, and Ebed-Melech is calling it out. And he is going to hold the king accountable for this. This would be like, like me going to, to President Trump and trying to hold him accountable for something. It's just not going to work out really well. At least that's not what it looks like on the surface. Now, you've got to remember, the world is falling apart. There's this siege. There's death in the city. Uh, people are, are, are falling left and right. And all of those who survive the famine, they're most probably going to ultimately die by the sword of the Babylonians. Who cares whether Jeremiah, this complaining prophet, languishes in a, in a well. Who cares? But Ebed-Melech, he cares. And what's amazing is because he cares, we're reading about an Ethiopian eunuch from 2,500 years ago, even today. And you see... Brothers and sisters, it is easy to turn a blind eye to evil when your world's falling apart. It's easy to only care about ourselves and to only care about our families in tumultuous times like this. But is it right for us to keep our mouths shut when evil rears its ugly head. Is it right to allow wrongdoing to be completely unopposed? Is it right to ignore immorality and wickedness simply because we've got our own problems? Well, God, he certainly doesn't think so. Listen to what the Apostle Paul commands the Christians living in the city of Ephesus. After telling them to, to lay aside their lives of sin and to uh, take on a new life of holiness as they follow Jesus, after telling them to walk in love, to be imitators of God, this is what he adds. He says, For you may be sure of this, 
that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the world. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. God is calling us to expose evil. Now, we don't have to be mean or nasty about it when we do it. We can speak out against it in humility and love, but God is calling us to speak out against all kinds of injustice and wrongdoing and immorality. You see, the hope of ending prejudice in all of its forms will never be realized if the church of Jesus is silent. The hope of ending abuse and exploitation will never be realized if Christians just look the other way. The hope of protecting innocent life from the womb and in the streets of the city and those that are lying in the beds of our nursing homes will never be realized if Christians are only concerned about their own lives. And the hope of ending endless government sanctioning of evil will never be realized if Christians don't open their mouths. And you see, many times we're hopeless because we're spineless. We're our own worst enemies. We sit back and complacently let other things happen because if we're really honest with one another, we're simply a bunch of cowards. Because one of the sources of hopelessness is spinelessness. No one could ever accuse Ebed-Melech of being spineless. Because he doesn't just speak out against what is, about what is right. He actually does something to make sure that right thing actually happens. Look again at verses 10 to 13. The king commanded Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, take 30 men with you from here and lift Jeremiah, the prophet, out of the cistern before he dies. So Ebed-Melech took the men with him and went to the house of the king to a wardrobe in the storehouse and took from there old rags and worn-out clothes, which he let down to Jeremiah in a cistern by ropes. And Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, said to Jeremiah, put the rags and clothes between your armpits and the ropes. Jeremiah did so, and then they drew Jeremiah up with the ropes and lifted him out of the cistern, and Jeremiah remained in the court of the guard. Clearly, Ebed-Melech's courage to speak against evil has an impact on Zedekiah. And Zedekiah assigns 30 guys to go along with Ebed-Melech 
and pull Jeremiah out of the pit. Now, I want you to notice something here. When you read this passage, you say to yourself, why in the world does God take the time to specifically talk about them stopping at a warehouse, getting rags and old clothes? Why would God think that that's important? And here's the reason why. I believe it's to show us that, that you just don't go smack running into something. You've got to plan a little bit. You've got to think about what you're going to do. Because what you do, even on the people who you're going to rescue, could impact them. And so Ebigmelech, he, he comes up with this idea. You know what? I don't know the condition of Jeremiah. I don't know how long he's been in the well. But what I do know is when you wrap a rope around someone's arms and you try to pull them up, it could rip him apart, and so he comes up with a plan. Let me pad stuff in there and make it a little bit more comfortable for him. And ultimately, what it shows us is this. you got to think about what you're going to do. Because sometimes you can ultimately do more harm than good. And now, with a plan in place, he's fully ready, ready to act, and he exercises the rescue and saves Jeremiah. You see, it's not enough just to speak up about that which is right. You and I, we actually have to go and make things right. It's incumbent upon us. The Bible speaks of this very concept in the New Testament book of James. James is the, the half-brother of Jesus. He, he's the leader uh, of the first Christian church that was established in the city of Jerusalem right after Jesus' death and resurrection. And he, he writes this letter, and uh, in it he's calling Christians not to just place their faith in Jesus, but to actively live out their faith, that, that there are works that are supposed to flow from our faith. And in James 4, 17, we read these words. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. You see, sin isn't just doing the wrong thing. Sometimes sin is failing to do the right thing. And it wasn't enough for Ebed-Melech to just speak about the evil that was inflicted on Jeremiah. He needed to act against that evil. And his failure to act against that evil would ultimately be sin. And the same is true for us. Not speaking out against injustice in any form to any person at any time. That is sin. When you see something going down that is wrong, someone being abused, someone being mistreated, regardless of the color of their skin, their economic status, what they believe faith-wise, if you sit there and you shut your mouth, that is sin. Why do we have a compassion ministry here at Living Water that, that Mike Bongo spoke so eloquently of the other day? Why do we have that? Because it's not enough to simply talk about poverty and hunger and homelessness. You actually got to do something about it. And that, that, that ministry over there didn't, didn't happen overnight. 
people saw a need, they planned for it, they invested money in it, and they actively worked to make it happen. It takes work. Doing the right thing takes work. It doesn't happen easily. Why do we have recovery groups for guys that are trapped in the, the cycle of, of pornography? Or, or, or why do we have groups for, for women who have been exploited by abusive spouses? Because it's not enough to just speak up about the evil of pornography and the evil of abuse. You actually got to do something about it. Is that an easy ministry to operate? No. Does it cause pain for the leaders? Sure. But if you just sit there and say, hey, pornography is a bad thing, but you don't do anything to help anybody who's caught in it, you just kick them to the curb, is that what the God of the universe does? No, he offers help. You see, a woman who's, who's trapped in, a, in a, a horrible situation, most people don't even say anything, let alone do anything. How many people, see, have friends and, and they've got family members who, who are in a terribly horrible situation and nobody says anything? Oh, I don't want to interfere. I don't want to mess. None of my business. The heck it isn't. You know about it. Your complicity is sin. I think Melik wasn't going to just sit back and, and, and speak against the evil. He's actually going to do something about it. And I don't know what, what, what it looks like in, in your own personal life, but you do. And there's evil happening in your lives, in your fear, sphere of influence. You know about it. It's in your workplace. It's in your family. It's in your neighborhood. It's amongst your friends. There's evil out there. We need to speak up. We need to engage. And I'm, I'm speaking as much to you guys as I'm speaking to myself. There are situations in my own family that sometimes I just don't engage in. Why? Because it's a lot easier to just live my happy little cushy Christian life than tick off other people in my family. But God says that's sin. Apathy is sin. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. So, What's different about Ebed-Melech than the rest of the people living in the city of Jerusalem? What moved him to, to not only speak about that which is right, but what actually moved him to do that which is right? We find the answer in Jeremiah chapter 39. After Jeremiah is freed from the well, Zedekiah thinks to himself, hmm, maybe I should get his advice again. And so he secretly calls to Jeremiah, brings him in, and he says, Jeremiah, what in the world am I supposed to do about this mess I've got myself into? The, the Babylonians have laid siege to the, to the town again. The Egyptians are not going to be able to help us anymore because they're all slaughtered out there in the desert. What in the world am I supposed to do? And you can guess what Jeremiah says. Surrender to the Babylonians. 
face your punishment. If you surrender to the Babylonians, you'll live. But if you don't surrender to the Babylonians, this city is burning to the ground. These people are going to die. And Zedekiah, you are going to be held in a prison for the balance of your life. Not surprisingly, Zedekiah doesn't follow Jeremiah's prophecy. When the Babylonians begin to attack the city with more fervor, they begin to set the city on fire. Zedekiah, his family, and his officials, they, they escape out of the back door of the city at night. The Babylonians go after them, run them down, kill Zedekiah's family, kill all of his officials, wrap him in chains, and gouge out his eyes. While all this is going down, Ebed Melech, he's stuck in Jerusalem. The city's burning down all around him. The, the, the Jews that are remaining, they hate his guts because he saved Jeremiah. He's terrified. He, he's, he's got nowhere to go. He's in this horrific place. And he's got to be wondering, what in the world is going to happen to me? I tried to do that which is right, and everything's falling down around me, and I'm probably going to die. And look at what happens in verses 35, or 15 through 18 in chapter 39. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah while he was shut up in the court of the guard. Go and say to Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will fulfill my words against this city for harm and not for good. In other words, I'm destroying this bad boy. And they shall be accomplished before you on that day. But I will deliver you on that day, declares the Lord. And you shall not be given into the hand of the men of whom you are afraid. For I will surely save you. And you shall not fall by the sword, but you shall have your life as a prize of war. Why? Because you put your trust in me, declares the Lord. You see, God is going to finish destroying Jerusalem. But in the midst, he's going to deliver Ebed-Melech, not only from the balance of destruction, but also from those whom he fears. And what is God's reason for sparing him? And what was behind Ebed-Melech's drive to, to speak out against evil and then to do things to rectify that evil? What was driving that? It's right there at verse 18. Because he put his trust in the Lord. Are you searching for hope this year? Are you wondering where that hope is going to come from? Is your family facing trials that seem to be completely overwhelming? 
You have no idea what, what the next six months are going to look like. Do you need strength to, to persevere through some kind of challenge that, that comes from living in this broken world? Do you need courage to speak out for that which is right and then to do that which is right? Just like Abigmelech, you will only find that by putting your trust in the Lord. That is the only place. You put your trust in a, a $600 stimulus check next week, not going to last really long. You put your trust in a government official, they might get voted out next time. You put your trust in a, in a, in a pastor or a friend or a spouse or an income or a hobby, all of that will fail you. There is only one thing that will not fail you. And that is the almighty God of the universe. Now what does that look like? What does putting your trust in the Lord look like? Well, the first thing many of you have already done, you have repented of your sins and received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's the first step. Now, now it comes following him, is putting your trust in him, allowing God's word to, to drive what you do. When this word says do something, do it. When it says don't do something, don't do it. When you do the things you're not supposed to do or don't do the things you are supposed to do, you fall on your knees, you confess your sin, you repent it to God, you pick yourself up, and you move forward. That's what we do. Listen to the promise that God ha has given us through the Holy Spirit, through the inspired words of the Apostle Peter. He says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, not according to your great works, but according to God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. He's the one driving the show, not us. To what? A living hope. Hope didn't die last year. He, he, he has a living hope that, that lives not just right now, but lives ultimately eternally. Through Where did that hope come from? That hope came through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What happened 2,000 years ago? That's the source of hope. If that was just a joke, if that was a lie, if that was a myth of history, we have no hope. The Bible even attests to that. We should be pitied more than any man if that was not true. But it is true. We have this living hope. And what? There is an inheritance waiting for you and me that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And where is it? It's kept in heaven for you. We so much are afraid of dying. And I get that. I want one day to have grandkids. I want to be able to see them. I want to do that. I want to enjoy these things of life. But there is something beautiful waiting for me. And I need to cling to that fact. And you need to cling to that. There is this great hope of following Jesus. It's kept in heaven, who by God's power 
are being guarded through faith for salvation. God's guarding us. He's protecting us. He sees what's going on. There's this obscure guy, Ebed Melech, 2,500 years ago. He's a nobody, but the God of the universe, he saw him. He sees us. He cares. There's none of us that are insignificant to him. The things that matter to us, they matter to him. He cares. And he says it will be revealed in the last time. And he says, in this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. COVID. Isolation, depression, death of a family member, sickness of a mom or a dad, a messed up marriage, broken relationships, they're there. But he says, though for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuous of, of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through, it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That these trials that God allows to come into our life, they're tests. They're our opportunity to show him that we trust him. And sometimes we're going to fail those tests. And his mercy is going to cover us again. And his grace is going to cover us again. And we dust ourselves up, we get back up, and we move forward again. And that's where this hope comes from. It comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a hope that stands the test of time. It stands the trials of life. And it's a hope that will change and sustain you in the midst of the storm. And may you and I know that hope this year. As we seek to follow him with all of our heart as we speak out against evil when we see it, as we work to, to rectify the, the pains of evil when it happens, and all the while we can be confident that God is for us. He is not against us. Let's pray together. Lord God, Father, I wasn't alive during the flu pandemic in 1918. I have no idea what the, the trenches of World War I must have been like. Father, I can't imagine what things must have been like on D-Day. Lord, for, for those who have, have uh, died in in suicide attacks and I don't know what it's like Heavenly Father to, to lose a, a loved one to, to cancer Father I, I don't know those things I don't know what it's like to be, be cheated on by a spouse or be rejected by a child or to be ridiculed because of the color of my skin or my accent Lord, I don't know any of those things. But Lord, many in this room have experienced different things, maybe not the trenches of World War I. But Lord, 
Lord, I pray for them right now. I pray for those who are at home, Heavenly Father, where there are struggles all around them. They're wondering what to do. And, and Lord, your message is simple. Trust me. And Lord, I pray that you would help them do that. Listen, that father was, saw his daughter and he, he, he wanted to believe, but he said, Jesus, help me in my belief. Lord, do that in our lives. Help us to be people of hope. Lord, give us joy in the midst of the storm. Lord, empower us to do that which is right and holy and just. Lord, in the spirit of truth and love. Father, thank you for these wonderful people. Bless them both here in this place and at home. For you are good. And your glory flows through the world and through the universe. Lord, use us for your glory. And it's through your son's name we pray.